0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. This is actually my first visit to your community here. I'm glad to be with you tonight. And also, I am glad that this church is named after St. Catherine of Alexandria. And this is actually the first church in our diocese named after St. Catherine of Alexandria. And uh, actually up to my knowledge, I don't know even if there is any other church in uh, North America or even in uh, the Coptic Church uh, in the whole world actually named after St. Catherine of Alexandria. So, uh, this is actually a blessing to have St. Catherine of Alexandria to be our patron saint here. Our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9. The Gospel is about uh, 62 verses. We will not finish all of it. We will try finish maybe 25 verses or 30 verses, half of it and as the time allows. Uh, So, in the first eight chapters, we find that the period of the instruction of the twelve disciples had been completed. Now it is time to send them uh, on their first mission for two things, to proclaim the gospel and to heal the illnesses um, in the people. You know, it's like you have a pre-servant class and after you finish training the pre-servant, you send them to be Sunday school servants. The outline of the chapter, from verse 1 to 6, sending out the 12, then from 7 to 9, Herod seeks to see the Lord Jesus Christ. From verse 10 to 17, feeding the 5,000. And by the way, this is the gospel of the ninth hour of the Egbay, The ninth hour of the Egbay, from Luke chapter uh, nine, from verse 10 to 17. Then from 18 to 20, St. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. 20 to 21, the Lord Jesus Christ predicts his death and resurrection. From 23 to 27, take up the cross and follow me, Jesus is saying. Most probably we will end our Bible study tonight at verse 27. But the outline of the rest of the chapter From 28 to 36, the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. From 37 to 42, a boy is healed. 43 to 45, Jesus again predicts his death to the second time in the same same chapter. Verse 46 to 48, Jesus answers the question, who is the greatest? Uh, From verse 49 to 50, the disciples and serving others. From 51 to 56, a Samaritan village rejects the Savior. Then the last verses in the chapter from 57 to 62, the cost of discipleship. So let's start from verse one. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases he sent them to preach the kingdom of god and to heal the sick so here our lord jesus christ sent his 12 disciples who by this time were able to teach others what they had received from the lord as I told you, as if they finished their pre-servant class, and now they can go and uh, deliver the message of the uh, kingdom of God. Uh, This missionary journey was recorded also in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. St. Matthew actually gives us a touching reason why the Lord sent the disciples and how he prayed all night before sending the Twelve. It was because he had sympathy for the multitude when he saw them as scattered sheep had no shepherd. If we read Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. After this, we read that he spent all night in prayer. In the morning, he called the twelve, and he sent them in their first mission. Before sending them, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And here, these words mean, he gave them the power to work miracles to cure diseases, the power to work miracles. And that authority, to give them authority by which the whole demonic system was to be subjected to them. So to cast out demons and to heal illnesses. Uh, And the same principle is true until today. When God calls somebody, he equips him with the gifts that he needs for the ministry. Again, when God calls somebody, he equips them with the gifts they need for ministry. As uh, we say, God does not call the equipped, but he equips the called. God does not call the equipped, but he equips the cold. When he calls me, he equips me. And I want you to notice that St. Luke mentions both demons and diseases. Why? Because the treatment of these two was not the same. Demons were to be cast out, diseases to be healed. So God actually, give them this very extraordinary power in order to cure diseases and to cast out demons. But the goal here of this mission is not just to cast out demons or to cure diseases, but the main goal is to preach the kingdom of God. That's why we read in verse 2, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. Sometimes. In our churches, when we want to uh, do mission uh, work, or missionary work, we go and feed the homeless. We ask about the orphanage. We go and visit hospitals, visit the sick, and stop here. This will not be a mission, a missionary work. This can be a charitable work, but not a missionary. The mission, yes, if we're going to feed the homeless, or if we're going to visit the sick, or uh, ask about the the orphans. Actually, while we are doing this, we are preaching the Kingdom of God. That's mission, to preach the Kingdom of God. So, healing the sick of every disease and uh, cure illnesses, The purpose of giving them this authority is to confirm their mission and commission from Christ that they are sent by God. Uh, So, when the Lord sent the disciples, He did not send them only to present a message to the people, but also to do good to them with supernatural power to bless the whole person, to heal the spiritual illness as well as the physical illness. That's what we say. We call it the holistic approach. We deal with the person as a whole, not only with his spirit only. Uh, this power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases was vitally connected with preaching the gospel. So, preaching the gospel, curing diseases, cast out demons, going hand in hand. Uh, Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't have two tunic apiece. So he told them, go as you are. The disciples were engaged in such holy work, preaching the gospel and bring the healing of God to the people. So they could not give the impression that they have any other motive by carrying money or bags. And what is amazing is that God offered them the power and the authority and he granted them the power of preaching and the power of healing before asking them to give up anything, before asking them not to take money or steps. He gave them the power first, then he asked them don't carry with you anything. They will have to rely on God to provide for them and they must trust that he will care for their needs. When they travel light, this means they are dependent upon God. If they did not take much with them, then they would trust God with everything. And if the preacher himself does not trust God, how can he tell the people to trust God? So the general spirit of the instruction simply is for them to go in the most simplest form in the the humblest manner with no burden, no obstacle to their movement and in complete and perfect faith and trust in God. Then the Lord here first he addressed the material needs. Now he will pass us to social relations. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So the general direction here is is stay in the same house all the time you are in in the same place. Why not to be distracted from moving from one place to one place? And this rule actually continued in the early years of Christianity. We know in the early years that some houses of the believers were used As churches as we read in Acts chapter 16 and verse 40 uh, so they went out of the prison for Paul and Silas and entered the house of Lydia and when they had seen the brethren they encouraged them and departed so they stayed in the same house all the time they stayed in Philippi Uh, in order not to be uh, distracted. So this principle was applied in the early uh, years of Christianity. They stayed in the same house until they go into a different city. Here actually, their duty was to persuade the people with the message of the gospel. But if the listener did not receive it, then the Lord told them, shake off the very dust from your feet. Why? What did meaning of shaking off the dust? This was a tradition, a Jewish tradition. If the Jewish person visited or just went through a Gentile city, Gentile means non-Jewish, which means a non-believer. Once they leave the city, they shook off the dust from their feet. This Gesher means we don't want to take anything from this city of the non-believers with us. So the Lord told them, any city reject you, regard this city as a Gentile city, as a city of non-believers because they did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the truth and love go together, truth because they are preaching the gospel of the kingdom, love by healing diseases and uh, casting out demons. Yet the message of God is rejected and despised. It leaves the men without excuse and turns the testimony against them. <clears throat> Verse 6 So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So here we see the disciples actually did what the Lord told them to do. They were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere with both the mission given to them uh, and the power to heal diseases and also to uh, preach the gospel of the king. Verse 7 Now Herod, the tetrarch, you know, after the great Herod, died. Herod who actually instructed or ordered the murder of the children of Bethlehem. This was the king during the time of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Herod died while the Lord was in Egypt. If you remember. Then Israel was divided into four areas. Um, So one of his children, his name Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was over Galilee. Like Pontius Pilate was over Judea. So this Herod Antipas is the son of the great Herod who ordered the murder of the children of Bethlehem. Now Herod, the tetrarch, tetrarch means head of a quarter. Because as I told you, it was divided into four areas. So tetrarch, head of a quarter. Heard of all that was done by him, by Jesus. And was, he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John, had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. So there is no indication that Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, was a man of sincere spiritual interest. Yet he was interested in Jesus just as a famous man, a miracle worker, and maybe as an enemy. You know, when Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, Herod asked Jesus to show him a miracle. So he just wanted to just see a miracle not to believe in him. And Herod actually absorbed the popular thinking about who Jesus was. As we will read today in in verse 19, same chapter, when the Lord asked the disciple, who do men say uh, that the Son of Man am? Some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, or one of the prophets. And these are the same ideas that came to Herod. heard, heard from the people that Jesus either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. But he said John the Baptist I beheaded his head. And I'm sure you know the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. The same way Jesus when he came, he preached the same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why some people confused John the Baptist with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some thought that Jesus is a famous worker of miracle like Elijah. And since the people were waiting for the return of Elijah as it was promised in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. And some thought that Jesus one of the older prophets. Perhaps one of the prophets that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 to 19 when Moses said the Lord will raise from among you a prophet. We read that Herod was perplexed. All these rumors are opinion about Jesus left Herod perplexed, confused. Especially he had a guilty conscience over the murder of innocent prophet John the Baptist. Definitely a bad conscience brings confusion and perplexity, because God is not an author of confusion, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Herod executed John in prison because Herod rebuked, sorry, because John rebuked Herod about his sin with his brother's wife. Herod wanted to see Jesus, but not as a sincere seeker, just as a famous man. His curiosity, uh, maybe, was the motive, or maybe he wanted just to kill Jesus as he killed John the Baptist. Luke noted this to emphasize the increasing danger surrounding the work of Jesus. Why why St. Luke mentioned that Herod was seeking to see Jesus in order to warn us about the increased danger surrounding the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Luke in his Gospel recorded more than one reference to Herod. Uh, Later, in, in the same Gospel, chapter 13, people went to the Lord Jesus Christ and told him, Herod wanted to kill you. Herod wanted to kill you. And the Lord replied, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Luke 13, 32. Also, Luke told us that Jesus finally met Herod on the morning of his crucifixion when Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to Herod when he knew that Jesus from Galilee. And Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herod was in Jerusalem... On the at the time of the crucifixion, and when he heard that when Herod heard that Pilate was sending Jesus to him, he got happy, excited, and wanted to see Jesus to perform a miracle for him. Yet Jesus did not perform any miracle to Herod, and when Herod asked Jesus many questions, Jesus was silent, nothing. Then Herod treated Jesus with contempt mocked him with purple robe and sent him back to Pilate. We read here in chapter 9 that Herod sought to see him. Maybe his guilty conscience was ready to conclude that John was risen from the dead. So he wanted to see him, to see was he John or a different man. Verse 10 and as I told you from verse 10 to 17, that is the gospel of the ninth hour. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Saida. Uh, so they left Jesus after he sent them and when they returned back, they gave him report about their mission. In, in verse 1, St. Luke called them disciples. Disciples means learners, but in verse 10 he called them uh, apostles. So before the the mission they were disciples like pre-servant class. They are learners students in this class But after they come back from uh, after they came back from uh, preaching uh, This mission preaching the gospel. They were called Apostles Apostles Russell means those sent with authority and a message those sent with authority and a message like when a person graduates from pre-servant now we call him a servant they certainly remained the disciples as we say to servants and even to clergy all of us don't lose your discipleship you need to be to have the spirit of a disciple and you need to be a disciple whether you are a priest or a bishop or a pope you need actually to keep your discipleship And the apostles remained disciples, but knew both the message and the authority in a much better way after their work, after they went and preached the gospel. Here we read of their return and giving their Lord a report about the responsibility that the Lord entrusted them with. They told him, All that they had done. That's why Sunday school servants should report to the coordinator, coordinator should report to the clergy, clergy should report to the bishop, bishop report to the Holy Synod, and and, and so on. Told him all that they had done, what doctrines they had taught, how they had been received, what success they met, and what miracle they had wrought. Then the Lord took them uh, into a private place. Uh, Why? To serve them, to bless them after they came from a tiring day. Uh, And here it it shows us how the Lord had special care to bless and to serve those who serve him. So he took them to a city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the city of Andrew, Peter, John, and James. And Josephus tells us it is close to the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. The lake of Gennesaret is the same like the Sea of Galilee. And this deserted place, where the desert of Bethsaida It's a lonely, wild, uncultivated, desolate place not far from the city of Bethsaida. Christ went with his disciples. Why? That they might be retired and alone to get some rest, to have some refreshment, uh, maybe some uh, private conversation together uh, to give them fresh instruction or direction, and words of comfort. But once the multitude knew that Jesus took the disciples and went there, as we read in verse 11, but when the multitude knew it, they followed him, and he received them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who had need of healing. He had barely time to retire with the disciples to one of these hills. Then the crowd came in a great number around Him. But here the Lord, we see that He served the crowd in different ways. Number one, He received them without being angry, without uh, making them feel guilty. Oh, we need our time together with my disciples. What you followed us? Couldn't I have some few hours in privacy between me and my disciples? No, he didn't rebuke them. Actually, he received them gently, kindly, in a very affectionate manner, with great respect, although they had prevented the private conversation between him and his apostles. Then he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, the gospel dispensation of the doctrine, the ordinances of it, the governing principle of the grace in the heart of his people, and the glory of the age to come. So he received them, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and number three, he healed those who had need of healing so jesus did not only give them spiritual food but also he did good among them healed those had need of healing he taught the doctrine and performed miracles verse 12 when the day began to wear away the twelve came and said to him send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions. For we are in a deserted place here. So probably the disciples mentioned their remark as a simple consideration for the crowd, among whom we know there were women and children. So they were concerned at least these people get tired and they felt they were doing good if the Lord dismissed the multitude and to to lodge sent them away to lodge and get provisions but to their surprise the Lord asked them something very strange verse 3 but he said to them you give them something to eat and they said We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. So the Lord here told them, it is not my will to dismiss the multitude and to send them into the surrounding cities and town, but my will that you should supply for their food. To the disciple, this request sounded very strange. It's obvious to you that we have nothing We have no resources to feed the multitude, even to feed a fraction. These are 5,000 men other than women and children. So a simple calculation, are speaking at least 25,000 persons, how can we feed them? But the Lord here with this statement, give them something to eat, he wanted to challenge both their faith and their compassion. Jesus wanted them to do the work also in order orderly organized way, make them sit down in groups of fifty as if he wanted them to enjoy the meal so this sitting... Uh, like they were in banquet atmosphere of, of banquet to enjoy the meal so he did, he told he did not tell them just give them some food to fill their stomach no sit them he let them sit down in groups of 50 also organizing them in groups of 50 made it possible to count them so when we were told 5000 men it is a, a, a correct number he made them sit down in groups of 50. So he took, verse 16, then he, Jesus, took the five loaves and the two fish, the little that they offered, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to sit before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and the 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. So Jesus took the little that he had, and he thanked God for it. It's a lesson for us in thanksgiving. Sometimes when we have little, we don't see any reason to thank God. Can you imagine if, if you have a banquet and you invited uh, 5,000 persons, not 25,000, and all the food that you have, five loaves and two fish. Who among us will give thanks to God? Will be, maybe, complaining, uh, having anxiety, stressed out, how can you feed the multitude? But there is a simple rule I want all of us to understand. In order to be successful, there is a human element and divine element. Human element, what you need to do. Divine element, what God would do. God will never ever do your part. Otherwise, God will be encouraging and enabling our laziness. But when we do our part, God will do his part. So, the human element is what you can do. The divine element is what you cannot do. I can offer the five loaves and two fish, but I cannot feed the multitude. That's his part. I can remove the stone from the tomb, but I cannot raise the dead man, Lazarus. That's his part. I can cast the net for a catch. That's my part but his part is to make me catch many, many fish. So do your part. Whatever, even if it's so little, do it. And thank God for it. Then God will do his part and will bless whatever you do. In service, do what you can. And then God actually will complete our deficiency. And he will do what we cannot. This miracle in which the Lord uh, fed the multitude from five loaves and two fish displayed his authority over creation. And the Lord in his humbleness, he insisted on doing this miracle through the hand of the disciples. Go and distribute. Uh, He could have... done it directly, but he wanted actually to encourage the disciples by using them. Apparently the miracle happened in the hand of Jesus, but they simply distributed what Jesus had miraculously provided. Then he asked them to collect the leftover, which a, a very impressive lesson to all of us from God himself against waste, and against extravisions. Uh, Why God performed this miracle? When we read just in the Gospel of Luke, uh, this story maybe will teach us two lessons. One lesson about the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ, and second lesson about his supernatural ability how he was able to feed the multitude from five loaves and two fish. But in the Gospel of John chapter 6, St. John connected this miracle with the concourse of our Lord Jesus Christ about Eucharist. So, this miracle is not only meant to remind us of God's compassion in the Old Testament but to prepare us for a greater miracle that St. John in his Gospel point us in Jesus is the bread of life and he will give us his body and his blood in the Eucharist to feed on him so it's not about feeding the multitude from five loaves and to fish but it's about how he is feeding until today and until his second coming from his body and his blood. So, in, in that discourse, the Jews saw Jesus feeding a miracle. Yeah, in the discourse of, uh, of St. John, in chapter six, he fed the, the, the miracle one day before he spoke about he is the bread came down from heaven not as the, their fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died but he who eats his body and drinks his blood will live forever. So as Moses liberated the people from the slavery in Egypt Jesus is the new Moses who came to liberate us and as David started the kingdom of Israel, he, the new David came to reestablish the spiritual kingdom of Israel. And as we read in John chapter six, the Lord Jesus Christ promised that one day he will give his body and his blood as food and drink for the salvation of men. So this miracle of feeding the multitude actually it's about or foreshadows the giving of himself in the Eucharist to all of us. Verse 18, And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? Since the miracle of feeding the five thousand at Bethsaida actually many things happened. But Luke avoided all these things or did not mention them and he changed the his readers time and scene. Now the scene Jesus is praying alone and then the disciples joined him and we don't really know whether they joined him in prayer or they interrupted his time of prayer, so he started asking them this question, who do the crowd say that I am? Jesus did not ask this question because he was ignorant on this point and needed information from his disciples. Definitely not. But he asked it because he would use this question to introduce a more important follow-up question. Who do you say that I am? About their faith, verse 19. So they answered and said, "John the Baptist." Like we read uh, earlier in this chapter, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets had risen again. John the Baptist. This was the opinion of some who thought that he read John was risen from the dead. And this makes us think that the image of the recently murdered John the Baptist was present with some in their mind. Uh, even Herod, as we read earlier in this chapter, uh, believes that it could be John the Baptist. But people uh, who believed that Jesus is John the Baptist means they did not know much about Jesus. Uh, Just because they were close in time, that's why they believed that Jesus is John the Baptist. Some said, Elijah. John and Elijah were national reformers. They stood against corrupt rulers. John against Herod, Elijah against Ehab, King Ahab for their, uh, of their day. And the similarity with courage and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ made them think that either he is John the Baptist or Elijah, especially Elijah, there is a promise that he is coming back. Also, maybe seeing Jesus as John or Elijah, this means the people of Israel hoped that the Messiah would be a political Messiah, one who will overthrow the corrupt powers that oppressed Israel. They said, John or Elijah, or one of the old prophets had risen again. So they were divided in their uh, sentiments about him. Then the Lord asked them, in verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. So the answer of Peter showed that he knew not from human being but from God. Flesh and men did not Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly Father. But most of the people did not know that Jesus is the Christ. And this reminds us with what we read in John chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He is the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend him. So the disciples knew what the crowd thought about Jesus, but Jesus asked the disciples, what do you believe about me? Definitely the disciples should have different opinion. They should know who Jesus was. Jesus answered and said, you are the Christ of God, God's Messiah, the promised redeemer from the Old Testament, the Messiah from the heart of God not the Messiah according to the desires of men. Although this answer is correct, and as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, God blessed Peter and told him, blessed are you, Simon Barjano. And he told him, this revelation is a heavenly revelation, but he gave them a strict instruction not to share it with anybody. To tell this to no one. Why? The crowd could not understand that Jesus really was the Messiah and the Messiah had to suffer. So the disciples should learn this first that the Messiah had to suffer. He is not an earthly king. He came to establish heavenly kingdom or kingdom of heaven on earth. So he did not want them to tell anyone Perhaps because his work was not yet finished. He had to finish his work before he got arrested and be crucified. Also, their faith was very weak and their knowledge is still very partial. So, this public proclamation, if start to say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is a Messiah, maybe could have in the working of the plan of God, the plan that's foreordained before the foundation of the world. But God actually has to offer himself in his own time, to offer himself on the cross. Verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. So, after he told them, don't say to anybody, then the Lord Jesus Christ told them what would happen to him. He would suffer, be rejected, be killed, be raised the third day. Definitely, the disciples or the crowd did not expect it or wanted this for the Messiah. But this is actually a turning point in the preparation of the disciples. From now on, he will teach clearly about what they expect, that he will die and he will rise from the dead to prepare their mind to the climax of his ministry which is crucifixion and resurrection. From the beginning he was fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah from the beginning until now concerning the Messiah, healing the sick, casting out demons, giving hope to the oppressed and the brokenhearted. But from now on until the crucifixion he is fulfilling the other part of the Process of Isaiah about the suffering servant who will die for the sake of his people as we read in Isaiah chapter 53. Important word here when he said the Son of Man must, must. So this was not just an idea or prediction. It is the foreordained plan of God before the foundation of the world. He must die and also he must rise from the dead. So the resurrection was as must as uh, as much a must as any other aspect of his suffering, he would be rejected, he suffered, he would be crucified, he would die, he would be buried, etc. So Jesus must rise from the dead. The last part in our Bible study today from verse 23, 27. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So he gave here three requirements. But it was bad enough for the disciples to hear that Jesus would suffer, be rejected, and die on the cross. But now he told them, not only me, but you also must suffer the same. Or at least you should be ready to accept the same if it happened to you. A true disciple of Christ should be willing to deny his selfish desires on a daily basis to die to himself in order to live to Christ. A true disciple should willingly take his cross and endure the struggles on a daily way. A true disciple should follow Christ, follow his teaching faithfully, should be obedient in his service to Christ and the kingdom. This means completely identifying with Christ's message, even to the point of death. Carrying, take up your cross and, and, and follow me, means what? In the Roman world, before a man died on a cross, he had to carry the cross to the place of execution. And this is what actually they tried with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the disciples heard, we need actually uh, to carry our cross. Uh, They knew uh, that the cross is an instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. And they knew also that if someone took up his cross, he will never come back, he will die on the cross. It is one way journey. But the promise here from Christ, if you take up your cross and follow me, you will live eternally. Not like what happened with the Romans when they crucified somebody. That's why in verse 24 he said, for whoever desires to save his life, his own way, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake by carrying his cross every day will save it. So the promise is whoever loses his life for the sake of Christ will live eternally in his heavenly kingdom. But whoever loses his life uh, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We must follow Jesus this way because it is the only way that we will ever find our life. As if the Lord says You will never live until you walk to your death with Jesus. Then you will have your life. You cannot gain resurrection and life without dying first on the cross. Also, this is a strong and sure promise of the afterlife. Life after death is not just imagination. It's a promise from God. If there is no life after death, then there is no reward for either the dying martyr or the living martyr. But God promised us his life after this. Then in verse 25, he gave a warning. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? What you would gain? So, earthly profit is only temporal, as not worth one's eternal soul. Avoiding the walk to death with Jesus means we may gain the whole world here, which is temporal, and then ending up losing everything if we don't have eternal life. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the Holy Angels. So, some are ashamed out of fear of the cross. Some out of social pressure some out of intellectual or cultural pride. So different reasons why people are ashamed of Christ. But after this extreme call to follow Jesus unto death, he added a promise of significant glory. Jesus wanted them to know that it wasn't all suffering and death. The end of it all was not death. If you are ashamed that the Son of Man will be ashamed, but if you confess Jesus, Jesus, when He comes, He will confess you and you will share in His glory. So the despised and rejected Messiah would assuredly return with a glory indescribable, inconceivable in his own glory and in the glory of his fathers with all his holy angels. So the Lord is affirming that he will return as the almighty judge. Uh, And verse 27 he said but I tell you truly there are some standing here who shall not test death till they see the kingdom of God. What does this verse mean? Probably uh, he is referring to transfiguration because verse 28 about transfiguration. So the glory that Peter, James, and John saw. But the most accurate opinion he is referring to his resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which the apostles and disciples, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, will witness. Why? He said, until the kingdom of God, they see the kingdom of God. And who know Jesus who reigned on the cross. So this was the day of his kingdom. Those who lived to see Jesus on the cross and to see the resurrection as and the Pentecost, they saw the kingdom of God. St. Ambrose of Milan contemplate on verse 27 by saying, Thus, if we wish not to fear death, let's stand where Christ is, so that he may say of us too, There are some standing here that shall not taste death. It's not enough to stand unless the standing is where Christ is. For only those who can stand with Christ cannot taste death. It is therein lawful through the quality of the very word to ponder that those who are seen to have deserved the fellowship with Christ, will not have even the perception of this. So in summary, he was saying St. Ambrose of Milan, if you stand with Christ, where he is in his suffering, in his crucifixion, then you will be with him in his glory and you will see the glory, the kingdom of God. This actually concludes our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever.